Good morning. Today's reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. And that's on page 978 of your Black Bibles. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to its to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Uh, I do not know when we started this series. Uh, we started to walk through the book of Ephesians sometime last year. And I intentionally stopped, and when we did, right before the, we hit the summer, so that we could spend some time on this section, on this section. But we are in the book of Ephesians, this great epistle from the Apostle Paul. And before we get into it, this is a dicey subject, and we need to pray before we do it. So let's do that. Let's, let's go to the Lord. God, you have been so merciful to us in all ways, and now you will be merciful to us again as you uh, bring our gaze, bring the gaze not just of our eyes, but our very souls onto your holy word, onto your sacred words, delivered by the apostle to us, carried throughout thousands of years of history, that we might know you, and we might know you and know what is best for us today. God, this is not an easy subject for us in our, in our culture today, and yet we know that your teaching is timeless. It is timeless, and that means that it is for us today. And so I pray that you would do a great work on our hearts. I pray for those who are married here today that you would uh, build them up, strengthen them, teach them. For those who are planning to get married that you would build them up, strengthen them, teach them, prepare them. For those who want to get married, God, comfort their hearts. May they use this time to prepare themselves. We now ask that you prepare us all out of these last moments by the Holy Spirit that we would know you, see you, trust you, believe you, and learn to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why do some marriages go well and some marriages do not go well? Why do some marriages last until death and then some marriages just die? I think at least part of the answer is because marriages are like plants. They're like plants. Now the reason that plants die is usually because they are not properly rooted. In fact, that first stage when a seed is just beginning, when it's just in that soil and it's been watered and has the sun, its first stage is its most important, and that is to plant its roots down in 
to the ground. And as one science writer said, it is terrifying. This is what she says. No risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. A lucky root will eventually find water, but its first job is to anchor. Once the first root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating to a place less cold, less dry, less dangerous. Indeed, it will face frost, drought, and greedy jaws without any possibility of flight. When a marriage first sets out after that honeymoon, it has the opportunity to dig itself into the soil and find its anchor, to lock down on those things that will steady it, nourish it, and get it through the difficult times of which there will be many. And yet too often, it seems, marriages do nothing of the sort. They do not dig down, but they remain at the surface. Roots are assumed while life is lived. And things, of course, go really well at first. Just like plants without rooting themselves in, they can still grow up quickly and even powerfully, it seems, on the surface. But then over time, this plant or this marriage begins to fade. Leaves fall, branches break, disease forms, wind and rain dislodges. Plants need roots to hold them down, to provide them nourishment, to allow them to survive and to thrive. And so do marriages. And so my question to you is, if you are married, is it rooted? When you go to plant yourself, when you dig your roots down deep, you need to make sure that you are digging in the right spot, right? You need to find the right soil because as that science writer says, as any plant experiences it, once you're there, you're there. Wherever you are, and marriages bring with it all sorts of difficulties. There is no easy marriage. Now, what is the right soil? What is the right soil in which we are to plant our marriages? Now, the world gives all sorts of ideas about this. Just go to the Amazon bookstore. You will check out a billion titles on how to be married. But we want to drive right to the center this morning and hear what the Bible says. And its direction is clear that what your marriage needs is the soil of Christ. The rich, watered, sturdy soil of Jesus. And what Paul is going to say is if that we would plant ourselves in it, we would thrive. Now, I just want to say up front what I think that is. For husbands, the soil is to be rooted in Christ-centered, sacrificial love and service. For wives, the soil is to be rooted in Christ-centered, respectful submission. Have you given yourself to these things? Have you rooted your marriage in these wondrous God-given things? Now, we are going to take two weeks to unpack this, to gaze upon this comprehensive teaching from Paul. And we're going to ask the questions, what is headship? What is submission? We're going to talk about how you try to apply this in your life. But I understand, I understand that this, this teaching is controversial. As I read it again, I'm like, here we go. But it's not just controversial. It is hard. It is hard to do this. And so I think what I want to do is be reminded again why we should follow this path at all. Why should I, as a husband, sacrificially love my wife, Jessica? Why should you, as wives, respectfully submit to your husband? 
And so we are going to, to get to that point where to answer that question, we are going to build a picture of marriage. And for some reason, as I was praying and working through this, a pyramid came to my mind. I don't know why it was a pyramid. That's just how it worked out in my mind. It's kind of like a game show. No, it's not a game show. This is my attempt to, to outline what marriage is, the biblical view of marriage. Now, there's more than what we're going to fill out here, but these are the most important things to answering our questions of why submission, why sacrificial love, why should we follow this teaching? And so we're just going to go through these. We're going to fill out these boxes one by one. At the bottom of the pyramid is that man and woman. Man and woman. Men and women, they leave the care of their homes, of their parents, to be joined together as one. That's what marriage is. So Ephesians 5.31 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage is this wonderful, wondrous, wonderful, holy thing. Two individuals, a man and woman, coming together in union. And we know that union from Jesus is created by God himself. Now they are not just united under a legal contract. We know that they are united in covenant. A covenant is a holy, sacred oath made by two parties. Now that idea, this coming together of two parties, of a man and a woman coming together, is vital to understanding marriage. The reason that we get married, the reason that we enter into covenant, is because our love is actually not enough. No matter how much you love your spouse, your husband, your wife, right after you get married, you love each other so much, but if you've been married for long at all, you know that that love can fade, can fall on hard times. And if we only had love, then our marriages would disintegrate. They would break apart. And so we commit to one another in covenant. Now, our commitment, our covenant, gives rise to love. It deepens and seasons and strengthens our love. But the covenant agreement we make with our spouse spouse is the bottom, the fundamental part of our marriage. It seals, holds, protects it. It is like the shade and protection of a tree. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian, a pastor in Germany during the Nazi regime, and he was imprisoned for his crimes. And yet he saw the opportunity to write a homily for his niece. And this is what he said to her. I love this. He said, Today you are young and very much in love, and you think that your love will sustain your marriage. It won't. But your marriage can sustain your love. Marriage is a covenanted union. Now let's go up a level. Within a marriage is one man, one woman, and we can say unequivocally that they are equal persons. Men and women united in covenant are equal persons. This is so important to understanding marriage. First, they have been made in the image of God. So Genesis 1.27, what does it say? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. They are, cre- they are created in the image of the Almighty, the Lord of hosts. But also this, they are equal also because they now are one, are united with Jesus himself. So Paul said this astounding thing for the people of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Men and women created in the image of God. Men and women recreated into Christ. As God looks down on his children, he does not love differently. He does not love one more or one less. He looks on all people the same. Those who are in Christ Jesus, he loves. He has adopted men and women equally. He loves them equally. He treats them differently. He blesses them the same. He loves them the same. Just think of the women at the time who read Galatians 3.28. 3.28. They lived in a culture where they were not equal. They believed probably that God did not love them the same way. And yet Paul says to them, you, my sisters in Christ, are loved and cherished by God just as any man is. Tears. At the heart of any marriage is equality and personhood. Let's, let's fill out another box here. Men and women are not just equal. They're sinners. Maybe you could say they're equal in being sinful. Paul says this, For there is no distinction. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. What did, what did David say when he was born? What did he say about his life? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I found this awesome quote this week from Hannah Arendt. She said this, Every year the world is invaded by millions of tiny barbarians. They're called children. These beautiful, lovely kids up here, some of them are my own. They are sinners, barbarians, because we all are. We are all sinners before a holy God. And listen, that does not change when we get married, does it? Now, now weddings are so much fun. I love weddings. I especially love it because I love to see the faces of the people who are getting married. Usually they're weeping, they're crying, and they're just beaming at the same time. They're marrying the person they love. They're going to be together forever with the person they love, or so they hope. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, they are also marrying, if they do not know it right then, a sinner, a tried and true, full-blown sinner. Dave Harvey wrote this wonderful, wonderfully titled book called When Sinners Say I Do. And he said this, Marriage is the union of two people who arrive toting the luggage of life. And that luggage always contains sin. As excited as we are when we enter into marriage, usually by the time the honeymoon ends, we discover that our spouse is more deeply flawed than we ever realized. That's an important part of understanding marriage. Men and women are, are equal in the sight of God, equal in Christ. They are sinners. Now we need to add a very important piece here. Men and women, husbands and wives, are also created differently. They're created differently. God in his creational brilliance made men and women beautifully, wonderfully, remarkably Different. Now, of course, physically we are different, but not just that. Not just that. 
We are different in a whole host of, of, of varying, beautiful ways. Now, I understand that culture plays a large part in how men and women act, but it should not minimize, this should not minimize the reality that our maleness and our femaleness has a bearing on who we are, on our spiritual and emotional makeup. God intended it this way. He intended that men and women be similar on the one hand, but also deeply different from one another on the other hand. And so when we get married, these differences not only do not go away, but they are enhanced. Our gifts, our abilities, our roles are enhanced because the whole intention of creating man and woman was that they would come together in bliss. Two halves come together to make the whole. That is the genius and the beauty of marriage. And he writes as a New Testament scholar, and he says this. Paul assumes, as do most, most cultures, that there are significant differences between men and women. Differences that go far beyond mere biological and reproductive function. Their relations and roles must therefore be mutually complementary rather than identical. Equality in voting rights and employment opportunities and remuneration, which is still not a reality in many places, should not be taken to imply such identity. In other words, men and women are created different. We should not just acknowledge that, but celebrate it. Men and women are, what is the phrase used? Mutually complementary. They fit together. So think about how God created the world. He created everything and then he, in his own image, created Adam from the dust. He created him. He's, he breathed life into him. And then in an amazing admission, what did he say was the first thing that was not good? Everything was good. The trees, the birds, the universe, it was all good. There was one thing though, the first thing that was not good. It is not good that man be alone. And so he puts Adam to sleep. He does this all on his own. God does this all on his own. He takes Adam's rib from his his side and he creates Eve. And he formed her, the Hebrew says, to be helper. That is the literal Hebrew. So she's not meant to be behind him or in front of him. She is meant to be at his side where the rib was taken out to support him, help him, guide him. And so husbands and wives and their differences have different roles. They have different parts to play within marriage. Now, what are they? We need to say this out loud. We need to say this very clearly. Paul says this in verse 22 of our chapter. Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. And then he brings them together at the very end and he says this, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What is the wife's role? Paul teaches that the wife's role is submission. Submission is the helping, glad, respectful deference of the wife, the authority of the husband. Let us be very clear, this is not subjugation. This is not silence. It is not wholesale obedience or voiceless compliance. It is not giving into every whim and desire of the husband. Submission is the enjoyed role of respect, deference, and help to the husband's 
role in authority. That's the wife. Here's the husband. The husband's role is this, sacrificial love. Love in the context of a marriage is the glad and sacrificial giving of one's life in leadership for his wife and his family. His authority as a husband is motivated and guided by, entirely by, his love, his sacrificial love for his wife. Yes, he is the head, but his headship is marked by sacrifice, not dominion and subjugation. Never does the husband wield his power except in glad and sacrificial service. He figuratively dies for his family. Maybe someday literally dies for his family. And that is the biblical teaching. That is the biblical teaching. And we have to admit that it is not easy. Now many think this teaching is outdated, wrong, Many think it should be rejected. A lot of people think it's patriarchal, sexist, intolerant, has led to the subjugation of women for thousands of years. And here's what I want to say first. They're right. They're right at some level. We must agree that too many in the world, and even sadly inside of the church, have upheld and practiced a view of headship and submission that is catastrophically mean and sexist and limiting to women, and it has led to violence. However, what I would argue is that those people, whatever they are practicing, is not biblical headship and submission. True godly headship is loving and sacrificial and kind-hearted. Friends, abusers do not die for their wives. Now, what about the idea that this is subjugating, that it's sexist, that it holds women back? Remember that we said that Husbands and wives, men and women are equal. They are created in the image of God, created in Christ. So that means husbands, wives, men and women are equal. There is no distinction. And so the idea that men would lead and women submit does not have to do anything with their worth. The idea that men would lead and women would submit has nothing to do with their worth. The Bible does not see them differently in this regard. And here's how I know this. Because when Jesus came down, you know what he did as he came into the form of a baby, what it says as he walked the life, as he walked towards the cross, that he submitted to his Father. That's 1 Corinthians 11.3. Now ask this question to yourself. Was the Father of more worth at that point than Jesus Christ? course not. Now in the end, this teaching is countercultural. There's no way around that. I can't prove that it's not. You must decide for yourself if Paul meant what he said. You must decide if this teaching is meant for you. But listen, when you do, that doesn't just end it. It doesn't just end it for you because when you do two things, separate things but connected things, come up. And I think these actually are the real problem to why we reject this teaching, why we have such a hard time with it. And the real problem is that empty box up at the top there. That empty box is the most important part of your marriage. We could ask, ask the question this way. Who is marriage for? Who should guide it, lead it ultimately? Who should your marriage point to? And friends, the answer from the Apostle Paul is so 
clear. It is Jesus Christ. This is what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then the linchpin, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is not that it's hard. It's hard to get to know each other. It's hard to walk through the difficult times. The mystery of marriage is that it points way beyond yourself to something glorious and amazing. It points to Jesus Christ. We are to be married under Him. We are to put Christ at the center of our marriages. We are to be married under His Lordship and stay married under His Lordship. Now here's the linchpin. Maybe the linchpin of your marriage. We do not put Christ at the center. We do not naturally put Christ at the center of our marriages. But ourselves. But ourselves. We put ourselves at the top. Our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our egos lead our marriages, not Jesus. Now, do you know what that means, though, when we put ourselves at the top there? Well, it means is that we put sinners there at the top. I showed this slide to my son yesterday, and he said, Daddy, you have to put the word sinners in red. Amen, you do. Amen. Sinners leading your marriage. Our main problem with marriage is that we do not put the perfect, holy, and gracious King Jesus at the center, but our selfish, unwise, and sinful selves there. Now, when you put yourself at the center of your marriage, what happens? You put yourself there. You will not do what Christ calls you to do because it is hard. You will not do what He calls you to. Not naturally. Everything in you says, I must do the opposite. And so for wives, God says that your tendency will be to sinfully take charge of your family. You will push your husbands out of the way by making all the decisions, by letting him sit on the sidelines. You will let him be lazy. Do whatever he wants to do. For husbands, God says that our tendency will be to let our wives lead. Our tendency will be to avoid responsibility. We will avoid making hard decisions and leading our families in grace. We will definitely not be kind and compassionate. We will not be sacrificial. We will not sacrifice our comfort for hers, our comfort for her needs. We will definitely not be loving. And I think that you see this even in those guys who are overbearing rude, and even abusive. Just because they are loud and angry does not mean they are leading. They're just mad when they don't get their own way. Both wives and husbands, both sinners, do not naturally want to follow Paul's teaching. But friends, acting outside of your role grates against your marriage and your heart. Think about what happened when Adam and Eve fell. Eve stands there. She's listening to the serpent speak to her. Sounds good to her. And so she takes the fruit and she eats of it. Where was Adam? He was standing right with her. 
because she hands him the fruit, the silent partner, going along as he watches his wife fall into sin. Now, we don't just have the problem of putting ourselves there. We also put our spouses there. We put our husband, our wife there. And when you put your spouse spouse at the center of your marriage, listen, you will end up loving them or submitting to them based on their behavior. If you put your husband there, if you put your wife there, at the center of your marriage, you will say, only if you behave in the ways that I think you should, will I behave in the ways that I think I should. Does that make sense? Only if you do what I think is right, what I think God is calling you to do, then I will behave in the ways that I, sh- I think God is calling me to, to act and work. Now, I made this realization kind of in the inverse this week, and I was, I was reading this passage, 24, just jumped out to me. Verse 24, it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I did not want to believe that. I really was not like, wow, this is awesome. This is great. No, I really actually thought the opposite. I, I thought to myself, why in the world would my wife submit to me in everything? I am far from worthy of it. I am far from a great leader and husband. I do not sacrifice and love like I should. I am not as kind and generous as I should be. I am not truly loving. She should not respect me in submission. I do not deserve it. And it's true. It's absolutely true. If I'm at the top of this pyramid for my wife, if I put her at the top of that pyramid in my life, we're not going to fulfill those obligations perfectly. We will never do what is right and true. I should not be at the top. She should not be at the top. I sh- will not sacrificially love her if everything is based on her behavior. She will not submit to me in everything if everything is based on me and my behavior. We are sinners through and through, but when we do that, everything goes out of whack in our marriages and we leave unsatisfied and unhappy. Now, what happens if we serve Christ? What happens when we take ourselves out of that top spot and center our marriages on Jesus Christ? Then we will serve our spouses as we have been commanded to. We will give them what they need, not what they deserve. Because then our hope It's not ultimately based on them. Our hope is based in Jesus. And that allows us to let go and do what he commands. And friends, you know what happens when you start to do that, when you start to live into your role as the person who submits or the person who sacrificially loves? That person ends up becoming the person that you wanted them to be in the beginning. We're going to talk about that next week. We began this sermon with a simple question, why submit, why love? The response cannot be because our spouses are worthy. The reason that we do these things is because of Jesus and his gospel. That is the main thing. 
Jesus Christ saved his people. He submitted to his Father, and he literally died for us, not because we deserved it. He submitted to his Father and died for us simply because he is love. And so that is where we root ourselves ultimately. Here is where we root our marriages. Tim Keller calls marriage gospel reenactment. I love that. Our marriages are gospel reenactment. He says this. If you take part in gospel reenactment, you will say, I will be the spouse I ought to be, ought to be even if you aren't being the spouse you ought to be. Because Jesus came to me in exactly the same way. My question to all of you who are married, those who are preparing for marriage, those who want to get married, are you ready for that? Are you ready to plant your lives deeply, your marriages deeply into Christ, into his gospel for the glory and joy of your spouse, for the success of your marriage, for the glory of God. I pray that is your vision today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Oh man, marriage is so hard. It is so hard. It is a wonder that any stay together. And yet you say very clearly that what you put into place, let no man put asunder. Well, we are are those people. We are those humans, those sinful humans. And so left to ourselves, we will not do as you have commanded. We will give up. When things get hard, we will give up, walk away, quit trying. And so, oh Lord, would you bestow upon us your great grace. Give us your sovereign mercy that may, we may do as you have intended. God, we will not do this on our own. A sermon, a, a passage, the help of friends by themselves will not do it. Counseling will not do it. We need your sovereign care. We need your miraculous work to make us into the people that you have, that you have called us to be to continue to make us into Christ in whom we stand. God, bless us now. As we enter into this time of communion, bless us. May we be reminded of you that you sent Jesus Christ, your Son, as the great spouse, the one who can never fail us or leave us, the one who loved us so much that he died for us, though we were sinners. Fix our eyes on him now. In Jesus' name, amen.